the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's an honor. Today is Tuesday, April the 7th, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Today on April 7, 1862, Union forces, they were led by Ulysses S. Grant, General Grant. They defeated the Confederates at the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. Today in 1798, the Mississippi Territory was created by an act of Congress. They made Natchez the capital. Today in 1927, the image and voice of then-Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover, he would become president, but Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover was transmitted live from Washington to New York in the first successful long-distance demonstration of television. Today in 1927. Today in 1947, auto pioneer Henry Ford, he died in Dearborn, Michigan. He was 83 years old. Henry Ford transformed not only the auto industry, created it for the most part, but he also transformed mass production of a lot of things. He had a brilliant mind. He liked cars, so do I. Today in 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, he held a news conference. In the news conference, he spoke about the importance of containing the spread of communism in Indochina. He said, and I quote, this is Dwight Eisenhower, president. He said, you have a row of dominoes set up. You knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly. Well, this became known as the domino theory. I used to hear people, adults, talking about the domino theory when I was a kid. And um, that's what it was all about. Eisenhower, I don't think he ever used that term. But that term came out of his little illustration. That illustration not only was a good one to illustrate how communism would infect Indochina, but it's a good Good illustration as to how bad things infect our lives. We set them all up. If we knock the first one down, it's pretty certain the last one's going to fall. It's going to go all the way down the line of the dominoes. Good good illustration, Mr. Eisenhower. Today in 1966, the U.S. Navy recovered a hydrogen bomb in the Mediterranean Sea off Spain. A B-52 had crashed. It was carrying secretly, but, I mean, some knew, but the public didn't, was carrying a hydrogen bomb. The U.S. Navy recovered it. That gives me chills to think about. I mean, what if a, you know, anyway, it didn't. Five years ago today, President Barack Obama was speaking at Howard University Medical School. That's a predominantly historically black university. He said he had a big announcement for the college, the university, the medical school, and for the world, five years ago today. He said, I have commitments from Google, Microsoft, and several other similar companies to help the nation's healthcare system prepare for a warmer, more erratic climate. We are heading 
toward climate crisis. There are crises in the world today. I don't know that climate is what they make it out to be. I don't believe some of the things that are supposed to be science because there's an equal number of scientists who are saying, no, that's not exactly true. The Green New Deal and all of that. But those scientists are not given a platform. The public, by and large, are kept quarantined from the truth of about half the scientists. So it isn't settled science. But we'll talk about that another day. The word of the Lord, Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. You won't even be scorched. We do live in some challenging times. There's no question about that. It's real and it's bad. But greater is he that is in you if you are a believer than he that is in the world. God has given us victory through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He has given us eternal forgiveness of our sins. He has given us hope. He's given us a peace that passes all understanding. This is the time to claim those blessings from the Lord. New York City is reporting this morning about just about 30 minutes ago. The coronavirus death toll reached a grim milestone today. More than 3,200 people have now died from the pandemic, surpassing the number of people killed on September the 11th, 2001, 9-11, in the terrorist attacks. The city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene said, just as I said a few minutes ago, they said there's 3,202 deaths now, 727 fatalities in the past 24 hours. They said all told in New York, we have confirmed 72,324 cases of the disease in five boroughs of the city. These are serious times, and I don't think anybody needs to be convinced of that. In fact, there was an article or a news, little news story that came out yesterday. A Bronx Zoo tiger, New York City, in the Bronx, that the zoo there, this tiger has tested positive for coronavirus. The officials say at the Bronx Zoo in New York City that he tested, uh, this tiger tested positive for the coronavirus in what may be the first confirmed case of an animal being infected with the virus in the United States. The tiger is a four-year-old female from Malaysia. Three other tigers and three other African lions have also developed a dry cough and are acting as similar to what this tiger has been I guess they're going to test these other animals now. The zoo has been closed to the public since March 16, but the National Veterinary Services Laboratory confirmed that the tiger's positive is positive for the COVID-19, and this is the first known known transmission to an animal. Apparently, they're trying to figure out how the how the tiger got the virus. Those are tough. Tough things. We cling to the Lord. 
we cling to our Bibles. We cling to the truth of God. We do not cling to fear of the unknown. Two years ago, in a series of public meetings, Washington state officials asked residents on both sides of the Cascades if a medical crisis should occur, how should we prioritize who should be treated and live and who should be left to die? Really, two years ago, 2018. The Seattle Times said yesterday, and this caught my attention, they said the information gathered from those hearings is now informing the Draft Crisis Standards of Care, CSC, not to be confused with CDC, but CSC guidelines. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about that today. Then I want to get to something else. But in a series of, the Seattle Times said, in a series of seven public hearings, officials asked residents on both sides of the Cascades what should and shouldn't be considered when deciding who should benefit from limited medical or emergency resources such as ventilators, drugs, personal protective equipment, etc. And who should be given comfort only during their last hours? That's chilling. As I said, those hearings were held in 2018. The Times says, quote, the information gathered from these meetings is now informing state officials. That's a quote from the Seattle Times. I presume they verified that. Where were these hearings held? I was—I didn't know about that in 2018. We were doing this radio program, and I was writing our daily blog. We've been writing that since 2004, and been on this radio program now for several years. And we—I started on this on ACN in—in in, I think it was 2012 or 2013, something like that. But these hearings were held two years ago in Bellingham, Yakima, Wenatchee, Spokane, Vancouver. Tumwater, and Aberdeen. The Times says there were 136 residents who were chosen to participate in the hearings. I think that they mean, I don't know if they, I don't think these people traveled from hearing to hearing. I think there was 136 total, so there were several in each of these meetings. That's what I take from that. I, I, I looked at it pretty carefully. I couldn't quite figure out what they were saying. But anyway, they say there's 136 people that participated in this. Any of you were a part of that I, or know somebody that was, I, I'd like you to let me know. I'm not interested in the names of people interested. I'd just like to know kind of who who did they have informing them? Were they handpicked? I mean, I don't know. But what came out of it is interesting, and I think you, we should be aware of this. And there is a lesson in this, and that's why I'm even talking about it. One, it's driving public policy, so everybody should be informed of that. But they asked four substantive questions to this group of people that they, citizens as they call them, and they are, that they met with. Number one was what criteria should be used to allocate scarce medical and life-saving resources when there's not enough for all patients in need? Number two, which options for allocating these resources should not be considered at all or like taken off the table? Number three, what unique factors in their community or region, if any, need to be considered in issuing crisis standards of care guidance, including such things as distances patients might have to drive or specific cultural characteristics? How should this state explain, number four, how should this state explain crisis standards of care to the public? And when should that information be made available or given to the public? 
Two-thirds of the uh, participants, we do know this, were women. 70% of them were white. 66% were between the ages of 30 and 59. Just over half indicated that they had at least a bachelor's degree, and 24% of them said they had attended some college but didn't necessarily have a degree from a college. Participants, according to the Seattle Times and the report, I was able to get a, a look at that, Participants commonly believed that age was an acceptable criteria on which to base crisis care decisions. They tended to favor prioritization of infants and young children. However, at every meeting, it was regularly noted, according to the report, that the deference for youth reflects a Western, specifically American, bias that should be checked particularly when dealing with cultures that value respect for elders. Now, they don't say this, but here's what I think. And I could be wrong, but I I, I don't think I am. I think what they're saying is that American kids weren't all that sensitive to age as opposed to Asian kids. And I've spent a lot of time in Asia, so I'm not just like I read a book somewhere. I've spent time on the ground there. We built churches and I've stayed in people's homes and and so on. I kind of understand where they're coming from because they've told me stuff that, you know, just in confidence or just as brother and sister in Christ. But they they have a different view of their elders. And all of that's rooted in in an old religion and 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 all of that. And I don't have time to get into that today, but there there has been religions in Asia where you actually worshiped your elders. I would like to inst- no I'm kidding but there is and that that kind of is still with this generation of a lot of kids from Asia not all but a lot of the younger people so that's I think that's what they're getting at here but they want to be politically correct they don't really want to say what they're trying to say and it's really tough when you get into the bondage of political correctness but that's another issue what the group generally rejected was chance based prioritization prioritization processes such as a lottery to determine who would get care or allegating scarce critical care on a first come first served basis they didn't really want they didn't want to you know just the pick of the draw and they didn't but they didn't want the first person there to get the first service this is interesting to me that uh, what the thought process is the participants were divided on whether healthcare providers should be able to reallocate life-saving resources from them from one patient to another, but they agreed if doctors were given the power to choose whether this person is treated and this person dies, there should be clear guidelines on when and how it can occur. The thought that crossed my mind when I read that part of this, and I'll come back to that in just a minute or two, is the clear guidelines on who you choose to live and whom you choose to die. I know that's harsh, but I mean, that's what we're talking about. What is the basis for creating those guidelines? That's the most important thing that I took from this. Most felt the public should be informed in advance when these practices are being used. I wouldn't have paid a lot of attention to this. Honestly, I wouldn't. I mean, I would have read it. It's the kind of thing that catches my attention except that the information and the data from these public hearings have now been synthesized into what is called Washington State 
Crisis Standards of Care Guidance Framework. It's become a policy piece. The Times noted that the guidance plan, quote, lays out an ethical structure of seven principles under which all crisis standard or care decisions must be made. What are those? Well, here's what they are, the seven. These are ethical, this is an ethical structure for the state of Washington in regards to this kind of situation, which we now know can occur and is occurring, has occurred. Here's the values, the moral structure by which these decisions are made. Fairness, duty to care, duty to steward resources, transparency, consistency, proportionality, and accountability. The Times says this ethical framework for making moral decisions was activated in mid-March when it became clear to this state that government that coronavirus cases might exceed the ability to care for them. So the Times says this has been enacted. But Dr. Kathy Loffey, she's a physician and a medical advisor to this CSC group and some other groups that are attached to it. She said on Thursday, just this past Thursday, she said, and I'm quoting her, our current data do, do not suggest that we need to use CSC. That's this moral decision-making a process. She said, we continue to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Well, whether or not the state has activated its guidelines, I don't know. The Times says they have. She says we haven't. But the takeaway from this is that I think the government should create policy. Romans 13 is very clear about that. And it speaks to that, among other things. But the larger question here is, what or who informs the sense of moral rightness? What is fair? As I just read the seven pillars of a moral decision for the state of Washington, fairness is the first one. But who decides what is fair? What is fair for a polygamist is that he gets to marry three wives. I mean, I'm not kidding. Fairness to a homosexual is they get to marry a same-sex person and denigrate the model of marriage that God himself created. What is fair? What is the basis of fair? And I could go through that on most all of those pillars of a moral decision. Subjective moral decisions are always based on one's personal worldview. If the personal worldview is so-called progressive, it's also relativistic. All progressives are relativist. In other words, What's true in one situation is not true in another. Our kids are raised on that generationally. From generation to generation, they go through school, they sit there until school is shut down. And there are some blessings from that, really, there are. But that's generationally been taught to our kids in America in Western society. It hasn't been taught in Asia and elsewhere. Now, the kids that come here and go to school, they get indoctrinated just like our own kids do. But Generally, those cultures do not teach that. Our culture does, unfortunately. Subjective moral decisions are always based on a worldview, and a worldview is created through our educational system to be very, in fact, hostile to Christian values. And yet they, we live in a country and we have a school system created 
in the beginning by Noah Webster, we have a system that was based on biblical values. In fact, Noah once said, Webster, he said, man, we could, ha- we could create coursework and curriculum from the Bible, from the truths of the Bible, without teaching the Bible as a religious document. Because it, cre- it, it embodies all of the moral structure to have a successful society. Boy, when are you going to hear that in education? You're not. But our worldview dictates what is fair, what is right, what is moral, what is ethical. There has to be a basis for it, but the, but the secular progressive is a relativist, so everything is relative. Well, this may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. And that's it, it, this is all theory in a classroom until we get into real life. And most of us are in real life nowadays. Some are locked up in classrooms, not so much anymore, but that's when it really has consequences. People can, the Barack Obamas of this world can sit and theorize in classrooms at Harvard or wherever all they want. But at the end of the day, you got to go out and live in the real world. And they live in this sheltered bubble that nothing is real for the most part. And they go out and they, they theorize and they have all these theories about this and that and the other thing. And that has become what we know as secular progressivism. And then these other people who haven't perhaps sat through that, the Nancy Pelosi's, the old guys, and they just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that. I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus, and I pray for Donald Trump every day, and I believe in progressivism. Well, men, you can't have it all. She doesn't embrace all of that beyond just verbally. So that's the kind of world we live in, and that's what's going on in our world. And that is, I don't know who these people were. I, and I, I'm not blaming the state. I mean, that was probably a good idea to get input. From citizens. In fact, it maybe is a, a novel idea to listen to the people who elected you and the, to the citizens of a state or a country. But I'm simply saying that this it matters what people believe, and it matters what their worldview is. The Old Testament describes a time, and you know that if you are a Christian or you've read the Bible, it describes a time that, quote, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's Judges chapter 17, verse 6 in particular. But the, the, New, the Old Testament describes that as a moral and cultural disaster, because it is. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, they're deciding what is right and what is wrong. They're deciding who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, based on a secular, humanist worldview. Because everybody acts on their worldview. So it's not surprising to find that Washington State is seeking to identify morality through the democratic process. You can't find morality through the democratic process. Our founders said you got to build the process on the eternal, unchangeable principles of God. And a lot of them said it, and they said it often. If I had another hour today, I would quote a bunch of it to you. I don't. But they said that. They believed that. They crafted a constitution. Not to promote the Bible, but they crafted a constitution on the authenticity of the Bible and the Judeo-Christian values that are in the Bible. Washington is the place where I was born and raised. We've lived elsewhere, Marjorie and I, and been in the church in North Hollywood and elsewhere. But, man, that I mean, my roots... But <laughs> I guess I lived on the wrong side or the right side of the Cascades. I was born and raised in, I was born in Yakima and raised in 
Yakima Valley. I, it, I guess seeking moral values democratically, I mean, it sounds good, but is it? When they keep changing? I, I don't think so. But I guess I shouldn't be surprised that that approach to ethical and moral matters, just because everybody believes something, I mean, is it make it right? I don't think so. Neither does God. Washington is the first place, the first state to legalize abortion by a vote back in 1970. Many of you know that. Among the first to legalize euthanasia by a vote. Man, I went from church to church to church with the guys from the Christian Medical Society or Association in America. They came out and, man, we were in a bunch of churches. And I was amazed. We were in a little Baptist church. And I I don't want to get off message here, but we were in a little Baptist church. And, I mean, it it was a liberal Baptist church. I thought it was a conservative one when we went there. But me and one of the doctors, I can't remember which one it was from the medical, Christian medical uh, association. We went there, and this doctor gave a really good talk about about uh, euthanasia and how it wasn't right, and so on, biblically. And this one lady came up, not to him, but to me, and she got mad at me because of what he said, because I was with him and I introduced him and whatever. But uh, she said, "I can't believe that you people don't believe that someone should die in peace if they want to. God wants us to die in peace." What can I say? That's the world we live in. Washington State was one of the first to redefine marriage. We fought the battle. We didn't win at the at the ballot box. But is the path to sustainability spiritually or even even culturally? Is it through relativism? No. Jesus says no. That's why he used the story, the house, the metaphor. You build your house on the sand, the storms come, the house is knocked down, it's destroyed. He said you build your house or your government (laughs) or your lives on the rock. That metaphor is for building on God's unchanging truth. I mean, it's very simple. Jesus taught in simple terms. Everybody can understand it if they'll listen to him. Progressivism and moral relativism has given, given us streets lined with thousands of homeless, drug addictions, needles all over the place. I mean, look at the West Coast. Not Look at Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and Los Angeles. How did we get to this point? I'll tell you how we got to this point. Through progressive policies that deny or exclude anything because it's Christian that has to do with the biblical tried and true values that have stood since God himself spoke that to the prophets. Our founders understood that a a successful society has to be ordered by absolute, not evolving principles and truth. They conclude that only the Bible gives that kind of assurance. And our nation prospered. It became the most free, the most prosperous, the most blessed, generous nation in the history of the world. A better way for government to create policy on who lives and who dies would be to begin with the biblical truth regarding the sanctity of life. I'm not saying they can save everybody every time. I'm simply saying let's start making our moral decisions on a moral basis and there's not a greater moral basis than the truth of Almighty God, the Bible. It's infallible. It will not pass away. Well, I wish I had a little more time to talk to you today. I don't, but thank you so much for being with me and thank you for your support. We need it. Believe me. 
Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Well, we'll continue this conversation tomorrow. See you then.